Hello and welcome to edition number 1937 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording at the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 10th of November 2022. I'm Jean and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Rob Oxpring. This week we have items from the Whitney Gazette, and the editor's choice comes from The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse, written by Charlie Mackesy. Our four readers are Amanda Harvey, Byron Russell, Barbara Barringer and Mick Walsh. So let's have our first story, which is about the Remembrance Parade and will be read by Amanda. The headline of this article is What Has Happened to the Poppy Parade? Dismay as Remembrance Tradition Fails to Return After Covid Hiatus. And there's a large photo of a previous parade in Whitney with a brass band leading the parade, followed by scouts and obviously lots and lots of other people um, and lots of spectators. <clears throat> a council has quashed claims... It banned a Remembrance Day parade after receiving criticism for scaling back the event. One councillor fumed that it was incredibly disrespectful to our fallen heroes. Others are angry that a military parade will not be going ahead for the second year in a row. Ben Woodruff, a West Oxfordshire district councillor who lives in Whitney, said, I think it's disgraceful that our town council cannot be bothered to properly organise this event, despite having staff paid for by our council tax to organise these events each year. They've had plenty of time to get this organised and have instead opted to scale it back to make it easier for themselves. Those who gave their lives for our country deserve the utmost respect and this is incredibly disrespectful to our fallen heroes. A letter from the town clerk to councillors said there would be no official military parade but space and time allocated to groups who want to walk up or parade under their own jurisdiction to the war memorial. Thomas Ashby, who represents the Whitney West Ward, said, Very sadly, once again, there will not be an official parade. However, groups have been informed that they can walk to the War Memorial on their own accord. This is the second year in a row that there hasn't been an official parade, and to be honest, this is really poor planning. He added, Whitney used to have a fantastic remembrance service, and I hope the Town Council gets it right in the future. Whitney Town Council insisted all arrangements were made in consultation with the Royal British Legion, which ran the military aspect of the parade until 2019, when the running of the service was given to the Town Council. A spokesperson said, After last year's event, it was agreed that the service and act of remembrance were the key parts of this community event, and all groups have been included in the planning for this year's service. Secondly, Byron will be reading a little more about Remembrance, followed by a short piece about Winston Churchill. Thanks, Jean. Yes, so in terms of district services, there are a series of events on Armistice Day this year, um, on Friday and on Remembrance Sunday, which will pay tribute to those who fought in the First World War, Second World War and later conflicts. At Whitney, space has been allocated to groups who want to walk or parade up to the War Memorial. There will be at least 28 organisations laying wreaths, including Whitney MP Robert Courts and representatives of the county and district councils. There will be a service at St Mary's the Virgin um, on Church Green at 11.30am on Sunday, November the 13th. At Chipping Norton, 
Services and parades will be organised by the British Legion branch at Market Street, Chipping Norton, at 9.50am on Sunday, November the 13th, and there will be a remembrance service at St Mary's Church at 10.30am on the same day. At Carterton, there will be a war memorial service led by the Reverend Katie Wellborn of St John's Church. The gates will be open from 8.30am to 4.30pm for the leaving of tributes. So that's at the War Memorial, Alverscott Road, 11am on Friday, November the 11th. The Remembrance Parade, <coughs> excuse me, organised by the Town Council with St John's Church, RF Bryce Norton and the Royal British Legion, will be held at St John's Church in the Burford Road at 10.45am on Sunday, November the 13th. And finally, at Woodstock, there will be an act of remembrance followed by a Civic Remembrance Day service at St Mary Magdalene Church at 10.45am on Sunday, November the 13th. This will consist of a parish Eucharist followed by an act of remembrance um, also at St Martin's Church in Bladen at 9.30am on Sunday, November the 13th. And now moving on, um, we have a look at uh, Sir Winston Churchill and his suit, which is on display at his birthplace. A grey pinstripe suit worn by Sir Winston Churchill has gone on display at his birthplace, Blenheim Palace. The suit was made by British fashion retailer Austin Reed and includes a label dated 16th of the 9th, 53, Right Honourable Sir Winston S. Churchill, KCG. It is on show as part of an exhibition dedicated to the wartime leader's lifelong association with the palace. The suit sold for £7,440, alongside other items of memorabilia at an auction of so-called Churchilliana at special auction services in Newbury, Berkshire, in August. The past Prime Minister was born at Blenheim in 1874, and he is buried in Bladen Churchyard. Now for an article about homes planned for the Blenheim estate, read by Barbara. That's right. Blenheim homes a threat to world heritage status. Mismanagement of the Blenheim estate could see the attraction losing its UNESCO World Heritage Site status, a conservation group has warned. The Woodstock stately home and its grounds have been designated by UNESCO for their cultural and historical significance. However, it has been claimed that the site could lose the accolade by promoting overdevelopment within its setting and neglecting historic buildings. The annual report of World Heritage Watch, WHW, a network of over 180 groups worldwide which supports UNESCO in getting information about the state of the sites, has published its annual report for 2022. In an article, Andrew Rain from Campaign to Protect Old Woodstock writes that the World Heritage Site, WHS, setting is now threatened by massive housing estates that Blenheim itself is proposing to build. He cites the proposed 1,230 homes at Park View, which are being built by Pie Homes Limited, a company owned by Blenheim, which would double the size of the town. 
He also refers to the estate's application for permission to build 180 houses at Hill Rise and 250 houses along Banbury Road. West Oxfordshire District Council has yet to determine the applications, but a decision is expected shortly. Mr. Rain also refers to Blenheim that they may be seeking to build an additional 500 houses. He said the planning authority for that site is Cherwell District Council, which has not included that site in its local plan because of the effect such a development would have on the setting of the Blenheim WHS. Yet Blenheim is pressing ahead with its application for planning permission. He adds that a group of buildings, known as Furs Platts, are a, definite, are a defining element of the rural and cultural landscape of Blenheim Park, but have been left derelict for at least a decade, and no attempt has been made either to demolish or restore them. Blenheim has neglected their duty to preserve the WHS and in doing so has degraded its integrity and diminished its OUV, that's Outstanding Universal Value, he writes. Mr. Rain urges that a heritage impact assessment to be done and calls for a buffer zone to protect the site. And he wants the UNESCO Heritage Committee to consider monitoring its access whether the WHS should be placed on the list of world heritage in danger. Liverpool was stripped of its world heritage status in 2021 after a UN committee found developments there threatened the value of the city's waterfront. The WHS stretched from the city's famous waterfront through the historic commercial districts to St George's Hall. It was only the third site to lose its World Heritage status since the list began in 1978, the other two being Oman's Arabian Oryx Sanctuary in 2007 and the Dresden Elbe Valley in Germany in 2009. Blenheim was approached for a comment but had failed to respond by the time we went to press. Here's another Blenheim story, this time a tragic one. Yes, it's the Gazette's reporting on the efforts to prevent another tragedy at a popular sporting event. The headline is Risk Assessment to be Checked for Triathlon. An inquest will look at the risk assessments and set up at the Blenheim Triathlon, where a, quote, kind and considerate family man lost his life in May. Andrew Phillips, 56, died after getting into difficulties during the swim element of the event shortly after midday on May the 28th. He was pulled from the lake and taken to the John Radcliffe Hospital, where his death was pronounced three days later. Cause of death was given as hypoxic brain injury following cardiac arrest caused by drowning. An incident report prepared by the event organisers Limelight based on recollections by medics and lifeguards, suggested that Mr Phillips was pulled from the water 30 seconds after falling unconscious and transferred to the medical team within a minute. At a pre-inquest review on Tuesday morning, Senior Coroner for Oxfordshire Darren Salter said the main inquest would focus on a number of issues, including the timings of when Mr Phillips was found 
and when he received medical treatment. We are looking at broadly two main issues, discovery of Mr Phillips and CPR and medical attention, he said of the question of timings. Also likely to be considered during the inquest would be the set-up at the triathlon event and risk assessments that were in place. Although the case of Mr Phillips' death had been given as drowning, Mr Salter said, what we don't know is what the cause of this incident was at the very beginning. There's no evidence of Andy suffering a medical event. Witnesses were said to have suggested that his foot was caught in a rope from the boy, although it was unclear whether that happened when he was being removed from the water. Mr Salter requested organisers' limelight, lifeguards' swim safety and medical companies' sports medics and acute ambulance and medical services uh, to provide video footage of the event and various pieces of paperwork to be sent to the coroner's office. He told Mr Phillips' widow, who attended the hearing via video link, together with her solicitor Cathy Leach and his sister, who was in court in person, May I pass on my condolences on the loss of Andrew. I think he was known as Andy in these tragic and very much unexpected circumstances. Of course, we can't change the great shock and loss, but this process is here, required as a matter of law, to look into the circumstances and find answers to some questions. Mr Salter said it was likely a full inquest would be in March at the earliest. This article is headed Contradictory New 20 mile per hour Signage, Shambolic Farce. Confusion over the installation of 20 mile per hour signs on 30 and 40 mile per hour roads has been branded a farce by an MP and motorists. Contractors working for Oxfordshire County Council put up new 20 mile per hour signs near existing 30 mile per hour and 40 mile per hour signs in the Whitney area but forgot to remove road markings spelling out the previous speed limits. And there's a photo here um, of the road leading into New Yat, and there's a marking on the road that says 30 and two new signs that say 20. Each of the now obsolete new signs had to be covered up with black bags until the mistake could be corrected. Whitney MP Robert Court said, This whole episode has been beyond farcical from start to finish. From dismissing the views of local residents who overwhelmingly expressed opposition to the proposals to the shambolic implementation of the last few days. It is an utter mess with West Oxfordshire residents bearing the brunt of County Hall's arrogant attitude and incompetent leadership. Motorists too were scathing. One driver told the Spotted Whitney Facebook page, I'm guessing the next step will be to send them out once again for another circuit to take down all the 30 mile per hour signs and remove the bags to reveal the 20 mile per hour signs. But why make sense and be cost effective when you can waste public money dragging one simple job out over three phases of a totally conf- confusing sh- sh- show? Another wondered if the county council was on drugs as you don't know what they're going to do next. Whitney chose to become the first town in England to have 20 mile per hour residential zones in July. It is part of Oxfordshire County Council's plan to cut speed limits in communities which support it. It came just weeks after Wales voted for blanket 20 mile per hour limits in residential zones. Andrew Grant, Oxfordshire County Council's cabinet member for highways management, said it was a landmark moment. 
Whitney Mayor Liz Duncan said they had received many requests from residents for the reduced speed limit and it would improve road safety. More than half of people who took part in a consultation about the proposals objected to the new limits. Of the 288 online responses, only 93 supported the scheme. Regarding the signage fiasco, a spokesman for Oxfordshire County Council said once the issues were brought to its attention, it acted accordingly by covering up signs. They said the 20 mile per hour limit would be enforceable formally once finalised by its legal team on the 14th of November 2022. Conservative councillor Liam Walker said, I think a lot of people were reflecting on whether spending £8 million changing road signs in areas where there haven't been fatalities and where there's been no data collected to suggest people are speeding is a good idea. I think people are against it. Outside schools, in town centres and outside busy shopping areas makes sense, but blanket 20 mile per hour throughout the whole town just seems ridiculous. He said that the council, which is run by a coalition of Lib Dem, Labour and Green Party councillors, was only recently pleading for more money for social care. The £8 million bills for new signs made it clear that their priorities are wrong. And now more controversial plans, but this time related to solar energy. And the headline reads, Too many new solar farms could ruin the rural landscape. Environmental groups have warned too many solar farms will destroy open countryside and are calling for councils to put all other applications on hold until the outcome of the Botley West solar farm is decided. Developer Photovolt Development Partners, PVDP, proposals to build a 1,000-hectare solar farm over three sites in the district of of West Oxfordshire, Cherwell and the Vale of Whitehorse, have come under discussion. The Botley West solar farm would be built on land north of Woodstock, Ensham and Cumnor, much of which is owned by the Blenheim estate. It would be the UK's most powerful solar farm with the capacity to generate electricity for all of Oxfordshire's homes, said PVDP. The size of the project is so enormous, covering 100 international rugby pitches in total, that it would be considered a national infrastructure project. It would need special government classification, which PVDP could apply for in 2023. CPRE said that it would oppose the Cumnor site outright, as it is in the protected Greenbelt. Helen Marshall, director of CPRE Oxfordshire, said, Climate change, energy security and fuel prices all mean that increasing renewable energy is vital, but we also need our countryside. Preserving our countryside is an essential counterbalance to climate change and nature recovery. Oxfordshire Pathways to Net Zero team have suggested that at the most 1% of Oxfordshire needs to be used for solar. This development would be almost half of Oxfordshire's total solar requirement, but at the cost of agricultural land and public green space, rather than making use of roofs or brownfield land. CPRE Oxfordshire is calling for a county-wide strategy. Ms Marshall said, With the rate of application still increasing, farmland, open countryside and greenbelt are at risk. Due to the potential impact of the Blenheim Estates proposed, solar farm, 
we would urge our district council to put other solar farm developments on hold until the outcome of this development is decided. It comes after Debbie Dance, director of Oxford Preservation Trust, said the number of sites coming forward on sensitive and highly visible sites is truly alarming. She said, We have asked the local authorities to come together and make a plan rather than just reacting to whatever comes forward. But this has so far fallen on deaf ears. We can only hope that as we all hear of more plans coming forward, close to the Thames and the historic toll bridge at Swinford, and another in the western hills of the city at Cumnerhurst, world-renowned dreaming spires, and a place where open, green public space provides fresh air, that the councils will begin to hear our cries for some leadership here. Let's save Oxford's landscape, heritage and views and have green solar energy, not ruin one for the other. Demonstrations about treatment of children with special educational needs in Oxfordshire. And the headline is Parents in Protest over over SEND Failings. Parents of children with special educational needs held a protest in front of County Hall in Oxford, accusing the council of failing their children. The group gathered at Carfax Tower this morning before walking together the short distance to the council offices and held banners reading Stop Failing Our Children, Stop Ghosting Families and Stop Breaking the Law and Our Children Exist. Their needs exist. We exist. Stop ignoring us and listen. The protest came before a full council meeting at which members discussed council finances. They said they were there to protest against a wide range of systemic failings in the county council's provision for children with special educational needs and disabilities, that's S-E-N-D, and took with them school bags and other items to represent each child failed by Oxfordshire County Council. After the protest, some members of the group addressed the full council. Speaking at the meeting, Mary Totman said, We ask you to listen and read the stories of our children written on the bags outside. The local authority, unfortunately, seems to be cherry-picking evidence to justify inappropriate provision. Many children are left with only a few hours of education a week, or with no provision at all, for months or even for years. Please take a moment to imagine what impact this might have on a child and their family. The failings are not just down to national funding issues, but also down to decision made by our council. Olivia Johnson, who also addressed the council, said, There has been a complete breakdown in the communication between Oxfordshire County Council Special Educational Needs Department and the families that they are trying to support. A complete breakdown of care. Families are fed up of being ghosted while our children are abandoned by OCC without adequate care or support. The impact this has on families and carers is immense. It puts strain on marriages, finances and mental health. People have to give up jobs, careers and children and parents 
are at a breaking point. Earlier this month, the council said the long-term financial impact of supporting children with high needs also remains uncertain, with parents worried this could lead to funding cuts. Chloe Hedges, who lives in Abingdon, with two children with special educational needs, told the Gazette, The cuts are a massive worry for us, as there's not enough funding already, so we expect it to be absolutely catastrophic. I have two children with special education needs, and the situation is really complex. Oxfordshire already has limited resources and limited schools that can offer those services. Not enough is being done to support our children. We feel that the council doesn't look at them as children, but only as numbers. The whole system is broken, and we can't even imagine how difficult it's going to get. District's most deprived areas revealed by census is the headline. Whitney Town Centre, parts of Carston and Chipping Norton have been named the most deprived areas of West Oxfordshire. New census data from the Office for National Statistics reveals the poorest and most wealthy parts of the district and builds up a picture of immigration and family structure. They show there are hundreds more Romanians in the district than a decade ago and the number of single people has increased as marriage rates fall. The statistics from the 2021 Population Survey classified households in England and Wales in terms of four different dimensions of deprivation. The first is where any member of a household who is not a full-time student is either unemployed or long-term sick. And the second covers households where no person has at least five or more GCSE passes or equivalent qualifications and no 16 to 18-year-olds at the home are full-time students. The third dimension is where any person in the household has general health that is, quote, bad or, quote, very bad, or has a long-term health problem. And the fourth, where the household's accommodation is either overcrowded or is in a shared dwelling or has no central heating. ONS data shows 43.4% of households in West Oxfordshire were deprived in at least one of these dimensions when the most recent census was carried out. This is below the England and Wales average of 51.7%. It is also a drop from 46.2% at the time of the last census in 2011. The areas most affected by deprivation last year were... Carton South, where 50.4% of households here were deprived of at least one dimension at the time of the 2021 census, down from 53.7% in 2011. Whitney Central, 49.6%, falling from 54.8% in 2011. Chipping Norton, 46.6%, a drop from 49% in 2011. By contrast, the area with the lowest level of deprivation was Woodstock, Stonesfield and Tackley, with just 37.3% of households registered as deprived. 
The statistics also show 661 people born in Romania were living in West Oxfordshire at the end of March 2021, up significantly from 80 in 2011 when the last census was conducted. The country has seen a surge in Romanian arrivals over the last decade after transitional controls were lifted on citizens. Romania joined the European Union in 2007, but citizens were not afforded full freedom of movement until 2014. And in West Oxfordshire, 12,114 people, 10.6%, were born in another country, up from 8.1% 10 years earlier. The census figures also show nearly a third of people in West Oxfordshire were single as the number of marriage and civil partnerships dropped across the whole country in the past decade. Of those aged 16 and older in West Oxfordshire, 31.2% were single, an increase of 27.8% in 2011. And 51% of people in West Oxfordshire were married or in a civil partnership last year down from 54.3% 10 years previously. Now for the editor's choice. As mentioned, this week I've chosen a small portion from The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse by Charlie Mackersy. I love this book. On one level, it's a simple story for children. On another, it gives great insight into real friendship and much, much more. Charlie is primarily an artist, so the book is full of illustrations, mostly sketches, but with a few coloured images. While they are heartwarming, in my view, the text also stands very much on its own. And the book is actually dedicated to my lovely kind mum and my wonderful dog, Dill. There's an introduction here. Hello. You started at the beginning, which is impressive. I usually start in the middle and never read introductions. It's surprising that I've made a book because I'm not good at reading them. The truth is, I need pictures. They're like islands, places to get to in a sea of words. This book is for everyone, whether you are 80 or 8. I feel like I'm both sometimes. I'd like it to be one you can dip into anywhere, anytime. Start in the middle if you like, scribble on it, crease the corners and leave it well thumbed. The drawings are mainly of a boy, a mole, a fox and a horse. I'll tell you a bit about them, although I'm sure you'll see things here that I don't, so I'll be quick. The boy is lonely when the mole first surfaces. They spend time together, gazing into the wild. I think the wild is a bit like life, frightening sometimes, but beautiful. In their wanderings, they meet the fox... It's never going to be easy meeting a fox if you're a mole. The boy is full of questions. The mole is greedy for cake. The fox is mainly silent and wary because he's been hurt by life. The horse is the biggest thing they have ever encountered and also the gentlest. They're all different, like us, and each has their own weaknesses. I can see myself in all four of them. Perhaps you can too. Their adventures happen in springtime, where one moment snow is falling and the sun shines the next, which is also a little bit like life. It can turn on a sixpence. 
I hope this book encourages you, perhaps, to live courageously, with more kindness for yourself and for others, and to ask for help when you need it, which is always a brave thing to do. When I was making the book, I often wondered, who on earth am I to be doing this? But as the horse says, the truth is, everyone is winging it. So I say, spread your wings and follow your dreams. This book is one of those. I hope you enjoy it and much love to you. Thank you, Charlie. And the first page actually has a picture of a little boy sitting down with his back to us saying hello the boy then bending over looking at a very small mole who's looking up at him i'm so small said the mole yes said the boy but you make a huge difference next picture is of a boy and the mole sitting on a branch of a tree what do you want to be when you grow up Kind, said the boy. What do you think success is? asked the boy. To love, said the mole. Next page has a picture of the mole staring lovingly at a huge cake that's bigger than him. He says, well, hello. Do you have a favourite saying? asked the boy. Yes, said the mole. What is it? If at first you don't succeed, have some cake. I see. Does it work? Every time. I got you a delicious cake, said the mole. Did you? Yes. Where is it? I ate it, said the mole. Oh, but I got you another one. Did you? Where is that one? The same thing seems to have happened. The boy and the mole are back on the uh, branch of the tree. What do you think is the biggest waste of time? Comparing yourself to others, said the mole. I wonder if there's a school of unlearning. Most of the old moles, I know, wish they had listened less to their fears and more to their dreams. We now see the the boy and the mole looking out over the landscape, looking for miles and miles and miles. What is that over there? It is the wild, said the mole. Don't fear it. Imagine how we would be if we were less afraid. There's then a picture of um, the boy and the mole still on the branch and a fox down on the ground. I'm not afraid, said the mole. If I wasn't caught in this snare, I'd kill you, said the fox. If you stay in that snare, you will die, said the mole. So the mole chewed through the wire with his tiny teeth. One of our greatest freedoms is how we react to things, said the mole. I've learnt how to be in the present. How? asked the boy. I find a quiet spot and shut my eyes and breathe. 
That's good. And then? Then I focus. What do you focus on? Guess what the mole says? Cake. Isn't it odd? We can only see our outsides, but nearly everything happens on our insides. There's lots more to this book, but I'm going to finish there. Now for the quiz. Uh, These are the questions and answers from the 3rd of November, uh, edition 1936. Question number one, who is the patron saint of children? Any answers? Saint Nicholas. Number two, which sign of the zodiac is represented by a ram? Capricorn. Aries. (coughs) Number three, what is the fruit of a beech tree known as... It's a beech nut, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I suppose you could call it a beech nut or you could call it mast. I guess either would be correct. Okay. Number four. Which of Snow White's seven dwarfs did not have a beard? Oh, depends whether you're talking about the Disney ones or the... Dopey. Dopey. (laughs) And number five... What was the Christmas... Excuse me, start again. What was the Christian name of the landscape gardener known as Capability Brown? Lancelot. Well done, Lancelot. Good. This week's quiz uh, is entitled A Sweet Tooth. Can you guess which sweets or chocolates the following clues describe? For instance... The answer to God of War would be Mars. So the questions are, number one, talk quietly. Number two, bright kids. Number three, courageous men. Number four, holds our solar system. And number five the better side of town. Now it's time for the notice board, which includes listeners' birthdays and deaths that have been reported in the Gazette this week. We wish Christine Tompkin a very happy birthday for Sunday, the 13th of November. (coughs) Unfortunately, there were several death notices in this week's Gazette. Derek Lambert Cookson died peacefully at the age of 97 on the 17th of October. Funeral to be held at South Oxfordshire Crematorium on Wednesday the 30th of November. Family flowers only. Donations to Cancer Research UK. Daniel Douglas Danks passed away peacefully on the 14th of October Funeral to be held at North Oxfordshire Crematorium, Tackley, on Friday the 11th of November. Family flowers only, please. Donations to the British Heart Foundation. Leonard, or Len, Henry Nichols, passed away peacefully on 29th of October, aged 69 years. Funeral to take place at St Mary's Church, Bampton, on Monday the 14th of November at 12.30pm, followed by burial. Flowers are welcome.
donations to Oak and Furrow's Wildlife Rescue Centre. Heather Maureen Orpwood, nay Timms, passed away peacefully on the 3rd of November, aged 89 years. Funeral to be held at Holy Trinity Church, Whitney, on Monday the 21st of November at 11.45, followed by cremation at South Oxfordshire Crematorium at 1pm. No flowers, please. Donations for Dementia UK. And lastly, Marjorie Trelogan passed away on the 22nd of October, aged 86 years. Service at St Mary Magdalene's Church, Woodstock, on the 17th of November at 11am. All welcome. Flowers to Jerams Brothers, High Street, Kidlington. The Torch Fellowship, Whitney Torch Fellowship for the Visually Impaired, meets on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm in the Welcome Church, High Street. So that you... new members are welcome. Contact 01993-891-639. And now we have David with his reflection for today. Thank you. I want to start this reflection with a question. Are you aware that our ancestors celebrated New Year on November the 1st? They celebrated their New Year's Eve on October 31st. So Ain, for that is what it was called, marked the end of the season of the sun, summer, and the beginning of the season of darkness and cold, winter. In many ways, the month of November is about remembering things that happened in the past. And even amidst all the rain we've had during the last few weeks, people were still able to celebrate Bonfire Night last Saturday, and I'm certain for many it was a night to remember. Remember, remember. Our lives are lived in the present, the here and now, but at the same time they're built not only on today, nor on the hope of what tomorrow may bring, but also on memories from the past. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. But we don't remember just any old memories, random events from our history. Rather, we remember those that show significance that give certain elements of the past, both of our own and the collective past, that belong to the society of which we are a part. The events reflect our joys and heartaches, successes and failures, priorities and convictions. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason and plot. Whichever way that fateful night in 1605 had gone, it was inevitable that it would be remembered. Had the plot succeeded, our history would have been rather different. For instance, we no doubt would have been singing alternative rhymes, and rather than burning an effigy of Guy Fawkes on celebratory bonfires, he would have been hailed as a hero. That's right, for history is usually written by winners. The plot, though, was a response 
to the inhumane treatment Catholics were receiving under the Traconian rule of the Protestant King James. One tradition of Christianity, brutally opposing and suppressing another tradition of the same faith. Isn't it sad that we continue to see such intolerance and prejudice even today? Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And why ever should we not forget? Our past is made up of many incidents that we allow to drift into the annals of history. Why single out this one that should never be forgot? Or in another event shared by millions through collective silence, why do we continue to celebrate Armistice Day tomorrow and Remembrance Sunday this coming Sunday? What's so important about remembering? It's not a question of whether we remember, but what we remember. We will always remember something, and it is our choice of memories from the past that builds our present. This choice reflects who we want to be and how we want to live, ultimately playing its part in determining who we are. When God's people were about to cross into the promised land, Moses gave them clear pointers to what they needed to remember and how they could do this. One of the things Moses told the Israelites was to remember the Lord your God. And we too are to remember whose we are. We belong to God and are called to live life for God's glory. Tomorrow and on Sunday, there will be many acts of remembrance. And remembrance is simply not a time to remember the dead and wounded or the suffering of countless millions in the two world wars and subsequent conflicts. Nor is it a time to remember only our dead. It is, though, a time to stop, to reflect, to mourn, not just the dead, but our almost limitless capacity as people to inflict pain on one another. To ask how on earth we have been able to create a world in which this kind of mass slaughter is possible. And we see this so often in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So as we reflect this coming Remembrance Weekend on the past and give thanks for all those who gave their lives in the service of our country, May we not simply look back and remember for the sake of it, but with a view to learning the lessons of the past, so that if possible, peace can be preserved, and if necessary, evil is confronted before it is even allowed to get out of hand. May we remember too, the one who chose the path of obedience, even through pain, in order to restore us to relationship with God, even his son, Jesus. Don't forget all you owe to God. Don't forget 
all you owe to others. Remember to remember. This article is headed, Government aims to kill over 2,000 badgers in Cull. Thousands of badgers will be killed this year as the government's badger cull is being extended to 11 new zones, including parts of Oxfordshire. New zones began operating this year alongside 61 existing cull zones. Cull licences are aiming for 2,389 badgers to be killed, with a minimum target of 1,309 in Oxfordshire, say campaigners. In 2021... 1,254 badgers were culled in Oxfordshire, meaning this year's target is nearly double, they say. The culls will allow trained marksmen to remove between 23,652 and 67,801 badgers this autumn across all 72 zones. This could bring the total number of badgers removed since licensed culling started in 2013 to more than 200,000. Peter Hambly, Executive Director of the Badger Trust, said, The Badger cull is out of control. The government refuses to publish where licences cover or their 2022 badger kill targets. We're hearing reports of horrific examples of alleged licence breaches. The situation is shocking and Natural England needs to do its duty and stop this mess on animal welfare and public safety grounds. DEFRA says badgers are culled to lower TB rates in wildlife and therefore reduce the number of outbreaks of bovine TB in cattle herds. But wildlife campaigners insist the government's culling policy is expensive, inhumane and ineffective. DEFRA said planned publication of the licences authorising badger control operations for 2022 has been delayed but will be published on gov.uk in due course. DEFRA has confirmed that 2022 will be the last year that new intensive culling licences will be issued to tackle tuberculosis in cattle. And now another animal story of a sort. <coughs> Excuse me. Friend of the Stars Brewery horse dies after short illness. Brewery workers have toasted the memory of a much-loved and award-winning dray horse who has died. Commander a Clydesdale draft horse which had pulled wagons for the Hook Norton Brewery in West Oxfordshire since 2019, died after a short illness at the weekend. The horse had appeared in television shows and won multiple trophies and awards. A brewery spokesperson said, He was a larger-than-life horse with the gentlest of hearts and the cheekiest of characters, a friend and a colleague with a CV which no horse will ever beat. He was an iconic TV star, appearing alongside Pam Ayres, inspiring her to pen a poem and transporting Martin Clunes at the Horse of the Year show. He won, he was a winner of hearts with all that he met, be that at village fates, outside local pubs or gracing the grounds of Blenheim Palace. He was a recent show ring superstar, winning numerous trophies and rosettes, all proudly displayed at the brewery. Hook Norton Brewery is now one of only three breweries in the UK, with working shire horses still delivering. The breed remains at critical risk of extinction, with numbers declining due to no longer having a use in agricultural work. The Shire Horse Society aims to spread awareness of the breed, striving to ensure their survival. Hook Norton 
has achieved Shire Horse Society approved centre status, meeting a rigorous criteria, ensuring their stables conform to the highest of standards. The headline reads, Healing Baths Restore Bald Cecil to Health, Ready for a New Home. A dog who was found bald and alone in a derelict house has been found a loving new home, thanks to Blue Cross Pet Charity. The dog was rescued by Hope Rescue in Wales before being transferred to Blue Cross for the charity to find him a new home. Named Cecil... By the team at Blue Cross's rehoming centre in Burford, he needed treatment for a a flea infestation which had left him bald along his back to his tail and a nasty ear infection. Chloe Lomas, animal welfare officer at Blue Cross in Burford, said Cecil needed regular baths every other day to soothe and treat his poorly skin and ear and, of course, medication to get him back to full health. Cecil was a calm and affectionate gentleman who liked the slower pace of life and very much enjoyed his home comforts, so he found him a place with one of our foster carers so he could recover in their care. But he didn't have to wait for long until he was snapped up by his new owner. We were so happy to see him head off to his new loving home forever. This year marks the 125th anniversary of Blue Cross, originally our Dumb Friends League. The charity formed to help vulnerable pets and their owners and continues this work today across rehoming, clinical, animal behaviour, pet bereavement support and educational work. It says it is striving to help even more pets in the future live healthy lives in happy homes. Blue Cross relies on the support and donations of pet lovers to continue its work. To find out more or donate, visit www.bluecross.org.uk slash 125-years-of-blue-cross. And there's a beautiful picture of him and he's smiling with his tongue hanging out. Lovely. Lastly, there's uh, some good news for sport in Carston. Headline is Carston Footballers Win Support for New Facility. Carston Town Council has voted unanimously to extend the lease to support Carston FC in a funding application to create a new sports facility in the town. Over 140 members of the club, plus parents and supporters, poured into the town hall dressed in their football kit, wielding banners to show support for their club before a town council extraordinary meeting. The club's land belongs to Carson Town Council, but the clubhouse and all the facilities were built by local residents and members of Carson FC. The club had been offered the opportunity for grant funding but need a 30-year lease. They say they have been trying desperately for many years to persuade the town council to extend it, but have been battling constant delays and inactivity. Carterton FC chairman Phil Godfrey has a phased plan to redevelop the existing premises and to work with Oxfordshire Skill Acquisitions Academy to provide a dedicated BTEC programme for school leavers. Mr Godfrey said... 
Our first phase is to get the proposed funding quickly for a modern 3G pitch that could be available for use 365 days of the year, irrespective of the weather. We are currently in discussions with a disabled football organisation about using the pitch as well. We are also talking to the RAFFA and a women's team to develop our girls' football programme. Councillor Joy Altman, West Oxford District Council Cabinet Member for Stronger, Healthier Communities, gave her full support. She said this will not only benefit Carlton, but it will be an asset for the whole district. OK, as well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several ways for you to listen to all our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus and the Internet. Full details can be found on our website, wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link to Listen Online. If on any week you do not receive your stick, or if there's a problem with producing them, you can always listen on the phone by dialing 01993 555 986. Keep listening at the end of the edition for the radio and audio described TV listings. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Just a reminder that this is a free service from the post office and can be placed in any post box. Please post it back to us as soon as possible as we sometimes run out of pouches and labels, which means that we cannot continue our service to you. If you wish to contact us, please write your message on a slip of paper and put it into your pouch. We will then phone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and the Country... Uh, Sorry, the Whitney Gazette for all the articles we have used tonight. Thanks to our technical expert Rob Oxbury um, and all of our readers uh, Amanda, Byron, Barbara and Mick Um, we would like to thank our admin volunteers who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping the records in our register and finally thanks to our everybody else who's helped tonight I know everyone would like to say goodbye and so until our next edition goodbye goodbye. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights starting on Saturday, November 12th. 2.45 on Radio 4, drama Homefront, a fragile piece. A special edition of the epic drama series based around the First World War. It's the 10th of November 1919 and Folkestone is preparing for the first Remembrance Day and contemplating a new post-war world. Radio 4 Extra at 6 o'clock, Dan Dare, 21st Century Spaceman. 
introduces a spot of nostalgia for those of us who remember the Eagle comic from the 1950s, which brought us Dan Dare, the hero of many an exciting space adventure. In the programme, science journalist Richard Hollingham meets a leading spacecraft engineer inspired as a boy by the comic book hero. He also meets the actors who star in the Dan Dare audio drama on Radio 4 Extra, Monday, more of which to come in a moment. Episode 2 of Dan Dare, 21st Century Spaceman, is on at 6 o'clock on Sunday, also on Radio 4 Extra. Back to Saturday, though, and the Festival of Remembrance highlights are broadcast on Radio 2 at 8pm. The festival paying tribute to the armed forces and remembers all victims of war and conflict through music, poetry, performance and reflection. Sunday, November 13th, the theme of this solemn weekend, of course, is the Ceremony of Remembrance from the Cenotaph on Radio 4 at 10.30. The moving ceremony remembers the sacrifices from the two world wars and many more recent conflicts. Paddy O'Connell commentates on Radio 4 on Sunday. Drama on Radio 4 at 3 is The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, Episode 1, The Fall. The play is an adaptation of David Nobb's classic comic novels which introduce the world to Mr Perrin, the suburban executive who turns his back on the rat race and makes a life-changing decision which brings plenty of laughter into our lives, if not his. An essential part of a listening experience is provided by the role of the microphone, a theme taken up by the oral historian Alan Dean on Radio 3 at 6.45 on Sunday in the sonic century The Microphone. Alan argues the microphone has changed people's lives more profoundly than they realise. He's joined by historians, artists, musicians and technicians to prove his point. And of course I'm speaking to you through one right now. On to then the selection programmes that are broadcast at the same time throughout the working week, Monday to Friday. So same radio station every day at the same time, all week. You can't go wrong. Book of the Week, Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle, is on Radio 4 at 9.45am. The actor Samuel West reads Ben McIntyre's true story for one of the most infamous prisons in history. It's November 1940 and the first British officers arrive at the prison. Also on Radio 4, but at 1.45 all week, Property of the BBC begins with letters and documents. During the week, the head of history at the BBC selects objects from the archives that illustrate the changing history of the BBC, celebrating, of course, its 100-year anniversary this year. The expansion of the media, the nation at large as well. Today examines three letters, John Reith's Director General job application, Roy Plumley's proposal for Desert Island Discs, and David Bowie's audition rejection. And a week at 7 o'clock on Classic FM... It's Smooth Classics, every evening with Zeb Sones. It claims to give us three hours of potentially calming classical music to help you relax and recharge. Why potentially, I wonder? We'll have to tune in and find out. On to the rest of the radio highlights then, starting with Monday, November 14th. Radio 4's 215 drama is The 5000, a retelling of the well-known biblical story of the feeding of the 5000 and the fallout from this extraordinary event. This modern take on the story draws us into the bewilderment, panic and fear felt by those there on the day. Parts 2 and 3 of 5,000 are also on at the same time, Tuesday and Wednesday this week, so the 15th and 16th of November. 
we revisit our fictional space hero, Dan Dare, on Radio 4 Extra's drama serial Reign of the Robots at six o'clock on Monday. In this episode, Dan and his crew face up to their greatest challenge. And the comedy show that seldom fails to deliver plenty of laughs is back on Radio 4 at 6.30. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Although the late, great Barry Cryer is much missed, Jack D and his current team will provide much needed relief from all too often depressing news of the day. On to Tuesday, November 15th. You can begin today by tuning into Classic FM at 9am, where Alexander Armstrong introduces the Classic Hall of Fame, devoted to renowned pianist and conductor Daniel Barenboim, who is 80 today and has made a massive contribution to our listening pleasure over the years. One of our most popular and successful chefs, Angela Hartnett, said we live on an island surrounded by fish, yet we don't eat much of it. That, to me, is simply insane. She takes up the observation on Radio 4 at 11am in a fishy phobia and gives her conclusion about how to turn this island into a land of fish lovers. And a reminder that part two of the 5,000 is on Radio 4 at 2.15. Wednesday, November 16th, in the Palace of Laughter, stateside, on Radio 4 Extra at 6.30, Geoffrey Wheeler presents a history of America's vast vaudeville circuit, equivalent to our music hall, which helped produce such stars as Fred Astaire, Bob Hope and Jack Benny. Later at 10pm on Wednesday, Radio 3 Free Thinking, Anne McElvoy leads a discussion on the plays of George Bernard Shaw, in particular his ability to construct arguments on the stage and how those arguments stand up today. A reminder that Radio 4 broadcasts the final episode of The 5000 at 2.15 in the afternoon on Wednesday. Thursday, November 17th. Desert Island Discs has long proved a popular programme and the repeat on Radio 4 Extra at 11 from 1972 has the screen star Margaret Lockwood as its castaway. With the programme's originator Roy Plumley, she talks about her life and chooses records from Beethoven to Simon and Garfunkel. To Radio 4 at 2.15 and drama Dear Harry Kane. This very topical play concerns a lifelong Tottenham Hotspur supporter from Sri Lanka who travels to Qatar where he's thrilled to be building a World Cup stadium in which his hero Harry Kane will one day play. But nothing can prepare him for the working conditions he will face. And following the play and staying with Radio 4 at 3 o'clock, Open Country visits Matlock in Derbyshire celebrating the 125th anniversary of the Matlock Bath Illuminations at which illuminated boats are floated on the River Derwent. As well as meeting boat builders, presenter Helen Mark finds how the thermal springs of Matlock Bath have drawn visitors since their supposed healing powers were first discovered in the 17th century. And we round off this week, Friday, November 18th. Radio 4 at 11am, Britain's communist thread. The historian Camilla Schofield explores the story of communism over the past century and its ongoing influence within British culture. Radio 3 at noon, one of the great jazz entertainers, Louis Armstrong, is celebrated in Composer of the Week. In 1924, aged 23, he arrived in New York with no classical training, hoping to make a career as a trumpeter. His charismatic nature and playful style made him stand out in the orchestra. However, as he was getting his first big break, the Harlem area of New York was crumbling under the Great Depression. And lastly, for our suggestions for this week, we return to an old favourite. Feedback on Radio 4 at 4.30. The programme is an opportunity to hear listeners' views on BBC radio programmes and compare them with your own. 
that's it for now. Thank you to Terry for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable one of radio listening. Hello, this is John from Otley Talking News, selecting and reading my choice of audio-described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 12th of November and ending on Friday the 18th of November 2022. So what's an offer for Saturday the 12th? Let's start at 11.35am on ITV with Ainsley's World Cup Flavours. The chef cooks for Jermaine Jenis and Denise Van Aussen. Then at 12.40, still on ITV, James Martin's Great British Adventure. Today, Radio Times says he's in Birmingham with food critic Grace Dent. But it said that last week, so I'm not sure where he is today. The feature film on Channel 4 at quarter past one is The Karate Kid Part 3. The Karate Kid's arch-enemy, John Kreese, sets out for revenge. On Channel 4 at 4.30, Hugh Dennis continues his Huge Homes with Hugh Dennis. Today he visits a London mansion with a slide inside, a 16th century manor house in Wales and a stately home in Wolverhampton. At 5.15 on BBC Two, the feature film is War Horse, based on Michael Morpurgo's book, Ted, a Dartmoor farmer, buys a thoroughbred horse for his farm, and his son Albert soon bonds with the animal, who he names Joey. When the harvest fails and war with Germany is declared, Ted has to sell the horse to the army. Albert enlists, but can he and Joey survive the horrors of the front line? At 7pm, Channel 4 takes a look at Titanic building the world's largest ship, chronicling every single stage of the construction of the doomed ship. As a new series on Channel 4 at 8, Castle Howard through the seasons. The castle has been used many times as a film location, the latest being Bridgerton. In this first part, spring, Easter is the first big weekend of the castle calendar, and they must capitalise on the Bridgerton bounce. Did you, like me, miss the second series of Sanderton? Well, ITV3 is showing the first part of it tonight at 11pm. Charlotte returns to Sanderton and has to make an important decision. Let's have a look now at Sunday the 13th, which is Remembrance Sunday. There's live coverage of the service at the Cenotaph at 10.15 on BBC One, but this is not audio described. The commentary should, though, give you a flavour of what's happening. The afternoon film on ITV at 2.40 is Despicable Me, an animated comedy in which super-criminal Gru is planning his biggest heist yet, to steal the moon. Adam's Family Values is the Channel 4 feature film this afternoon at 3.55. Morticia and Gomez hire Debbie to be nanny to baby Perpet, but soon she attracts amorous attention from Uncle Fester, but the nanny's motives prove even more sinister. On Channel 4 at 8pm is Escape to the Chateau. The Strawbridge's attention is in the walled garden, where they find something special under the ivy on the north-facing wall. Also eight on ITV is Part 3 of The Larkins. Ma and the children try to convince Pop to take the court case seriously, but he is planning to conduct his own defence. What could possibly go wrong? BBC One at 9pm is part three of SAS Rogue Heroes. Despite all the signs that the operation to parachute into the desert should be called off, Sterling and his men know if that they don't take this chance, they may not get another. Also at nine, but on BBC Two, David Olosoga looks at the People's Piazza, a history of Covent Garden. 
He explores the 400-year history behind this part of London's West End, which has been a market, a meeting place, and a site of protest, performance and renewal. Another choice at nine is part four of The Handmaid's Tale on Channel 4. June fights her need for violent revenge as Serena settles into her new role in Toronto. The late film on BBC Two at 10.30 is Here Before, a psychological drama. Grieving mother Laura becomes obsessed with her neighbour's daughter Megan, who resembles Laura's deceased child. So when Megan exhibits odd behaviour, Laura is convinced something supernatural is afoot. Here's a look at programmes that are on at the same time each weekday. And all the following are on BBC One. Homes Under the Hammer at 11.15. Bargain Hunt at 12.15. Doctors at 1.45. Escape to the Country at 3pm. And The Repair Shop at 3.45. Moving to ITV at 2pm is Dickinson's Real Deal. And on ITV3 at 6pm each evening is Heartbeat. All the soaps are on at their usual times, their usual channels, except Friday, which is Children in Need Day. Looking now at programmes on Monday the 14th of November, Channel 4 at 8, Food Unwrapped, Store Cupboard Staples. The team discover the reason behind Peanut Butter's long shelf life, and Jimmy Doherty visits Sri Lanka to find out why lentils are split and not whole. On BBC One at 9pm, The Pact continues... Driven by curiosity and suspicion, Beth follows her husband to a secret meet-up. At 9.30 on BBC Two, Hong Kong's fight for freedom. In this, the first of two parts, the Hong Kong government proposes a law in 2019 allowing criminal suspects to be extradited to China, sparking a wave of anger across the city and the threat it poses to the territory's autonomy. This documentary tells the story of four young Hong Kongers who joined the mass protests. At 10 on Channel 4, 1966, Who Stole the World Cup? The story of how, just before the World Cup began in 1966, the trophy was stolen in London, rending the FA, the police and the government an international laughingstock. As a rerun of Grace on ITV3 at 8pm, when a Brighton property developer vanishes on his stag night, Grace is approached by D.S. Branson to help investigate the case. Now what's on on Tuesday the 15th of November? The Rickshaw Relay Rides Again is on BBC One at 8. This is the 12th year that the Rickshaw Challenge has been run for BBC Children in Need and this programme celebrates its history. Also at 8, but on Channel 4, is the final of The Great British Bake Off. The finalists faced a test of all their baking skills. They must create a perfect picnic for the signature. Then for the technical, they make a summer classic. And the showstopper is a celebration of our planet. But who will take the winner's crown? There's another edition of Grace on ITV3 at 8. Grace and Branson have two seemingly unconnected deaths on their hands. But it becomes apparent that they may be the work of a twisted serial killer. At 9 on BBC2, Louis Theroux interviews Bear Grylls. Louis goes off grid when Bear whisks him off to his private island just off Wales. As the two men sit down to talk, Louis hopes to gain an understanding of the real man behind the tough exterior. Masterchef continues on BBC One at Nine. In this, the first of this week's heats, the chefs must break down a rack of pork, French trim one of the chops and serve it with a French-style butter bean stew. At 9.15 on Channel 4, 
Miriam and Alan are lost in Scotland and beyond. The odd couple head for the Isle of Skye, where Alan arranges a boat trip. They are joined by a pod of dolphins. Back in Glasgow, Miriam takes Alan to a truly unique place, a Jewish LGBTQ plus vegan and anarchist cafe. On to Wednesday the 16th, MasterChef The Professionals continues on BBC One at 8. The chefs must make, in 20 minutes, a sweet potato gnocchi and serve it with a hazelnut pesto. At 9 on more 4, Griff's Canadian Adventure. Comedian Griff Rhys-Jones visits the world's second largest country, beginning on the Atlantic coast in Newfoundland and Labrador. Also at 9 but on BBC One is DIY SOS Children in Need. Nick Knowles and his team transform a derelict site in Leeds into a brand new base for the young woman's charity Getaway Girls in just 10 days. The charity has been offering support and a safe place for girls and young women for 35 years but have outgrown their premises and need a place to call their own. On Channel 4 at 9 is Grand Design's House of the Year. Kevin MacLeod explores the spectacular homes that are in the running for the Royal Institute of British Architects House of the Year. Tonight's properties include a pink beach house and a renovated 1960s home in Derbyshire. There's another chance to see Louis Theroux's chat with Bear Grylls at 10.40 on BBC One. Thursday the 17th of November. At 8pm on Channel 4, Aldi's next big thing. It's the store cupboard section this week as suppliers try to convince staff that their Norfolk mustard ice cream and chocolate flavoured pasta can compete with famous brands. At 8pm on BBC Two is The Secret Genius of Modern Life. Hannah Fry looks this week at food delivery. Hannah tucks into the tech behind apps such as Just Eat, which are now used by 24 million people. She also reveals that the technology behind submarine warfare is responsible for takeaways making it to the right address. The second heat of MasterChef The Professionals is on BBC One at Nine. In this week's quarter-finals, the chefs must, with ten minutes to plan, come up with a dish based around a combination of orange and ginger. Also at nine, but on BBC Two, the English continues as Eli and Cornelia encounter a baby and a child, the victims of Captain Clegg's bushwhackers. A rift develops between Eli and Cornelia as she wants to reunite the children with their family who are travelling north to claim land from Native Americans. Also at nine, but on BBC Four, is the feature film Philomena. This film, based on a true story, follows a woman's 50-year search for the son who was taken from her when she was a teenager staying at a Catholic convent. Finally to Friday the 18th, it's Children in Need Night, but although it takes up most of this evening's BBC One programming, it is not already described and anything can happen. The Great British Bake Off Extra Slice is on Channel 4 at 8. Joe Brand chats to Stacey Solomon and Stephen Mangan about Tuesday's final. Joe then meets the runner-up and the winner. Tom Allen speaks to all this year's bakers. There's another episode of Grace on ITV3 at 8. When a body is dredged up from the English Channel, it sets in motion a disturbing investigation. This is followed still on ITV3 at 10pm with Foyle's War. In the Russian house, it's July 1945 and Britain is settling into peacetime. DCF Foyle stumbles upon an international cover-up which could bring down the British government. 
I hope you find something of interest in my selection this week. TNF Soundings. 